Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. You're finding us in the midst of a global pandemic, of course. That's not news to anybody. And in these crisis-like times, I think it's really important to highlight independent media. Independent media is going to become ever more crucial in the days, weeks, and months to come because, frankly, we can't trust the corporate spin from the mainstream press. We can't trust the way in which the information is often conveyed to us in its uh, economic and political context in which it's wrapped. Instead, we we turn to our independent media, especially those of us on the left who want to have a critical anti-capitalist perspective. We want to understand what's going on in the world, what's going on with our own lives, with our families, with ourselves, but we want to understand it in the way that really makes sense to us. And so that's why we support independent media, and Counterpunch really does depend on your guys' uh, support. If you want to become a subscriber, you can go to the website, you can get a subscription to the print magazine, you can simply make a donation, you can get the digital subscription delivered to your email, whatever works for you. We really appreciate all the support. Please do consider it uh, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, With that said, I want to turn to my guest today, who I'm very happy to speak with again and have back on the program. Dare I call him a friend of the show at this point? Michael Roberts is with us again. Michael Roberts' website, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. I would consider him probably one of the two or three best economists in the world working today. Somebody whose work I read every single time a new blog post comes up. Do check out the website and also the very important book, which is (laughs) once again going to become incredibly relevant, The Long Depression, Marxism and the Global Crisis of Capitalism. Uh, You should check out that book as well as some of his other books. Michael, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for inviting me back. And after that flattering introduction, you are my friend for life, definitely. (laughs) <laughs> That's a very good way to ingratiate myself. So let's let's jump right into it. I mean, I know everybody understands the the events going on in the world right now. We're all sitting in our homes or wherever we are. And um, I want to just ask you right off the bat, you've been talking about issues uh, like this for quite a while. And you've been writing about this argument that, you know, when the economic downturn comes that economists the world over, capitalist economists the world over, would describe it as an exogenous event, some kind of a black swan event, you know, an asteroid come out of outer space crashing into our economy. Who could have thought it, right? But you've argued exactly the opposite. Can you explain why? Yes, because um, if we, uh, this is a virus, so you think first of all, well, it's a virus, it's part of nature, it's not nothing to do with economics, our lives in terms of going to work and getting a living and uh, trading and so on. This is something to do separate from what uh, human social activity is. Um, so on that level, uh, you could argue, people might uh, well argue, and they will do, that this is like something that you could not expect. It was going to hit us from the from the side, from behind, blindside us uh, and cause this, this situation, which is now reaching the point of a major slump in the world economy. Um, People used to argue back in the 19th century that things like um, earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, sunspot movements, all would cause uh, a shock to the economy, which otherwise would proceed in a harmonious and uh, progressive way without any problem. But it's been my view that that's not the nature of modern capitalist economies. They've got inherent 
recurring and regular crises in production and investment because there is a strong contradiction between investing and producing for profit and investing and producing for the needs of the people. And that contradiction exists all the time and leads on a regular basis to crises in production and investment. And this particular virus is, uh, is really just the tipping point for what we've seen in a series of, uh, of collapses in production and investment in capitalism, really for the last 150 years. And for those listeners in their lifetimes, oh, I can cite, if uh, they go back as far as the Second World War, several uh, recessions or slumps in production which have left left people without their jobs on incomes and being forced to uh, take a real cut in their living standards, and even worse, in the third world countries, as they used to be called, uh, losing their lives. Uh, we see the 1974 recession, the 1980-82 recession, when manufacturing was decimated, 1991, uh, and then perhaps the most... Uh, huge recession was the Great Recession, as it's called, 2008-9, where just about every major economy in the world took a slump in production. People lost their jobs. Uh, governments were forced to bail out uh, the banks and other uh, sectors of capitalism in order to keep things going. And then we spent the last 10 years seeing a very, very slow recovery with wages suppressed, uh, people working in jobs which are precarious, temporary, part-time, on-call. Um, all that situation has existed for the last 10 years, and now we get hit again. And this virus is a tipping point because the economies were already beginning to dive, Eric, before this happened. In the 2019 period, the major economies were growing at less than 2% a year, heading towards zero. And in many emerging economies, as they're called, and some major ones too, uh, there was actually a recession. Japan was in recession. The Eurozone was gen entering a recession. Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, they were all in slumps already before the virus hit, hit the uh, world as it has done. And it hit the world in China, which was the fastest uh, growing economy, and it, it had that effect. So but there are two points here, Eric. Firstly, that there is a recurring and regular crisis in capitalism, and it's not a shock that comes from nowhere when these slumps take place. And in this particular case, it was the tipping point, point for a downturn that was already coming about. And just one other thing, I suppose it's gone a bit long, but I have to say that where did this virus come from? And we must be aware of this, listeners, that, that we're getting an increasing number and will have of these pandemics, these viruses, these pathogens, which hadn't existed before, uh, getting into the human bodies around the world. And it's clearly because of the huge drive of the industrialization of farmland, of the destruction of nature across the globe in the pursuit of profit uh, and fossil fuel industries driving through um, uh, pure na nature and forests, where lots of wild animals with very high levels of pathogens which to which they're immune, uh, but very dangerous to humans, are now coming into contact with humans in a big way as urbanization and industrialization takes place. So we're seeing these viruses jump from wild animals into human, uh, the human uh, production and food chain, and that is producing the, the increasing number of viruses it will have. This won't be the last one. We're going to get others as we can, if we continue destroying nature and not organizing production on a balanced and a harmonious basis so that we work with nature, not against it. 
You've also written recently about um, the way in which we can understand this crisis and the way in which economists are looking at it. And I'd like to just ask you to explain a little bit, if you could, about the understanding of the crisis that we're entering as a crisis of supply versus understanding it as a crisis of demand and why understanding the distinction between those two and what is real and what is not, or rather, which is the chicken and which is the egg, as it were, why understanding that is important? Well, I think this is a very good example of why um, generally in capitalist economies, the crisis comes in the process of supply, of production and investment, rather than because there's suddenly a lack of demand. I read in the papers again today from many economists that this is a crisis of the lack of demand. People have no longer got any money to buy things and therefore that's causing the crash. But I think most listeners would know that that doesn't sound right. What is happening here is the fact that uh, people are being forced to stop work, go home uh, because they've got the virus or they could give it to somebody else. Uh, Companies are therefore being forced to lay off workers and, there's, and so therefore production is coming to stop. It's a supply shock in that sense. And that uh, that's the initial problem. Then when people don't have any money, of course, because they've been laid off from work, uh, then there's a crisis in their ability to buy things. And so the, the shops, the restaurants, the clubs and all the rest of it start losing money because nobody's going out. This is a, uh, this is a supply shock to begin with. And, and actually most, if not all, capitalist crises are the result of a supply shock. What happens is, and I think this is where I differ from the mainstream economists and what are called the Keynesian economists, who argue that it's all to do with consumer demand, that what happens in each capitalist crisis is the capitalists decide at a certain point that they're not going to invest anymore in new technology, they're not going to increase production, they're not going to employ more workers, in fact they're going to reduce them, and they do so, make that decision, when they think that there's not going to be profitable for them to continue the same level of production and investment that they had before. And when that cascades across a group of capitalists, then it produces a slump in uh, investment, production and employment, and then people's incomes go down and then they spend less. If you look at the facts of the last eight economic recessions in the US, we find that one year before, people are still spending. They're still consuming. Uh, Household consumption remains strong. What happens one year before a big slump is that business investment collapses and that eventually leads to the reduction of employment and production. And then people spend less because they haven't got so much income. And that is the temporal sequence of events from investment to production to employment to income to to consumption. But Keynesian economics actually says it's the opposite. Starting with consumption, people, for some unknown reason, stop spending uh, and that causes a a crisis in sales and revenues. And then the capitalists start to reducing uh, production and laying off workers. But anybody can think about this, that that doesn't seem likely. And certainly in the case of this pandemic shock, it's clearly the case that supply shock is the starter. Of course, there is demand shock. It comes later in the temporal sequence of events. Uh, but not the other way around. And that's important for us to understand that what causes slumps in capitalism and will cause the next one when it comes will be a decision of the capitalists, not the decision of householders who don't want to spend for some unknown reason. 
It seems so obvious and logical. I'm almost flabbergasted to think that people could make the argument going the other way, and yet they do. I suppose my question is, is there are there examples in which we could uh, apply that Keynesian understanding of a demand crisis, say, for instance, with this ongoing narrative about millennials killing certain industries, right? A lack of demand for shopping malls and physical retail stores versus Amazon. Where do we see a lack of demand have an economic impact in that way? Well, that's clearly a redistribution of what is regarded by the market and the consumer as socially necessary. People switch their forms of spending on according to what is most convenient or effective for them. So internet shopping rockets upwards while uh, commercial uh, centers and malls decline. Um, uh, specialist shops find it more difficult to survive. Amazon booms in this current uh, pandemic crisis. Amazon's going to doubly boom because everybody is going to have everything delivered to the home. And as long as gig workers and delivery drivers don't get ill and don't get overworked and drop and stop have to go home, then Amazon is going to make a killing and literally in the terms of profits uh, out of this uh, pandemic crisis. But that's a switch between one level of demand activity uh, uh, from consumers and others to another. What we're talking about is an overall slump in production caused by an overall slump in demand. But that's, as I've argued just earlier, is not how the process goes. Um, we can't see that. I mean, I read in many economists, particularly Keynesian economists, saying the crisis has shown that there's been an underlying lack of demand for the last 10 years. Well, this is just not true. Consumption uh, as a percentage of GDP in the US is 70% and it's gone right back up as where it, to the highest levels that we've seen before. Uh, so consumption has been really strong. Retail sales have been strong in the, in the US until recently. So it's not true that people have stopped spending and that's caused the slump. It's because production has stopped and that is now going to cause a slump in consumer spending. There'll be switches between what people want to buy and where they want to make their uh, decisions on on uh, consuming. And that makes uh, obviously a difference to some sectors, but they're then replaced by others who take up the slack, as it were. We've heard numerous uh, voices, including those in the Trump administration, uh, essentially try to make comparisons to 1987 and the crash that happened in 1987, essentially saying that, well, this isn't really the beginning of a depression. This is just a short term blip and an economic opportunity to buy, uh, you know, trying to, of course, spur positive thinking, as it were, magical thinking, as it were. But um, you've argued that comparisons to 1987 really fall flat uh, and that this is a much different type of situation. Can you explain why 1987 is really not a good parallel and maybe just magical thinking? Well, just to uh, explain to your younger listeners, in 1987, uh, in, uh, on, a, on a Monday in October, there was a massive fall in the stock market, uh, as big if not bigger than the ones we've seen in the last week or so in the US stock market. Um, the this fall took place very quickly. Stock markets in some work parts of the world had to close as a result of the repercussions of this. But after a short period of time, the recovery took place. And within uh, the end of that month of October, uh, stock market prices to back to where they were. And it didn't appear to have had any major effect upon the economy itself. So it's clear, first of all, to say that we can have financial crashes 
in the stock market and, and in banks, uh, just because the speculation and instability that takes place in people betting on uh, prices moving up or down uh, is inherent. It's an instability that's inherent that can cause crashes, flash crashes and other things because of this weird and wonderful and anarchic and uh, ridiculous way of organizing the investment of, uh, of our economies through a stock market and so on. But uh, in 1987, it didn't lead to a slump. Uh, now, the arguments of U.S. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin at the moment is that that's the situation that's going to happen now. We're going to have a short, uh, sharp slump in the stock market and financial assets, something they said wasn't going to happen anyway. And then it's all going to recover because, A, because this is just a virus that will soon be dealt with, and B, because uh, the U.S. administration is going to make sure that the stock market is helped by huge bailouts and, and so on. And huge amounts of money have already been pumped by, into the banking system by the Federal Reserve. And uh, we'll, we've, each day we get a new announcement of how much more uh, is going to be pumped into the economy to restore it. But I don't think this is the same situation as 1987. In 1987, uh, production was still going well. Investment was still strong. And investment was strong because the profitability of capital in the major industries was very good. It had been rising since the... A slump of 1982, where loads of manufacturing workers were laid off and lost their jobs and never got them back. There'd been a cleansing of the US manufacturing sector, and this laid the basis for keeping wages down and boosting sharply the profitability of capital in the US. And that profitability continued to rise for another 10 years. And as a result, the period of the late 1980s and 1990s was really a boom period for US capitalism, particularly in the high-tech sector, which came onto the scene with the new technologies that we know about, leading eventually to a dot-com bust in 2000-2001. Uh, but so we had a, another 10 years of rising uh, profitability. That's not the situation in 2020. Actually, the rate of profit in most uh, sectors of US capitalism and elsewhere is lower than it was in 2007, hasn't recovered to the same level before the Great Recession, and is now really at a low, very close to all-time lows for profitability. Now, listeners might say, well, I don't understand that. Amazon's making huge profits. Uh, Microsoft makes huge profits. Uh, Google makes huge profits. Uh, Netflix is making huge profits. But these super companies are the exception. They make huge profits. Uh, they've got cash reserves. But the whole swathes of American and European industry don't make that sort of level of profit against their investment. They have relatively low profitability, and up to 20% of them are only just surviving by to get enough money in order to pay the interest on the debt that they've built up over the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, we call these zombie companies. They're just surviving by paying their debt. They're not able to expand, invest, in really develop uh, their workforce or anything. So, And that's a whole layer of 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 profitability for companies across the board in Europe, Japan, and the US. So profitability is low. And it was already beginning to have an effect on investment and production before this pandemic hit, hit the world. So this is a different situation. It's going to be very difficult for economies to return to even the levels that they've had uh, of just around 2% growth uh, over the last 10 years on average uh, in the major economies turn to that level very quickly, if at all. Uh, 
I suspect that this slump will now at least last two quarters, the fifth quarter we're in now, which ends uh, next week, and then right through the next quarters of June is going to be really nasty, with production perhaps falling by 8 or 10%, which is huge in the, in the major economies. Now, Mr. Mnuchin and the White House hopes, and most of the authorities are saying, well, it'll all be fine, there'll be a quick, as it were, V-shaped recovery, and in the second half of the year, things will become booming back and will recover as well. Now, even if that was to happen, which I think is highly, highly uh, doubtful, is that uh, even at the end, of, it would mean at the end of the year that basically there'd be no growth in the major economies. Europe would probably have fallen over the whole year. The US at best will be flat. Uh, Japan will have fallen. And as for the emerging economies, as they're called, like, as the ones I mentioned before, they will have suffered really badly with huge uh, reductions. So there's going to be, and trade will be very, very weak and down. This is going to be a really bad period. It's, it's going to be as bad as uh, the Great Recession of 2008-9 in terms of reduction of GDP, investment and trade. Whether it lasts as long, which was 18 months of the Great Recession, remains to be seen, but it's just as deep. Before we head to break, I just want to ask really quickly, uh, there was an image that was floating around on social media. I, I don't know if it was from the Wall Street Journal or one of those publications, but it was a line graph that showed uh, an overlay of uh, 1929, 2008, 2009, and 2020. And it basically showed you know, visually that what we've witnessed over the past week or two uh, in 2020 is a much steeper collapse than anything that we saw in 2008, 2009, and in fact, uh, you know, frighteningly, even significantly worse than what you've seen in 1929. Now, that doesn't necessarily uh, track for the entire health of the, you know, holistically of the whole economy, but rather of the stock market, etc. But it, it does seem to illustrate the severity of what we're going through. I think that's right. And uh, all I could say is that um, having looked at least six or seven now, forecasts from various uh, mainstream official forecasts and uh, private sector forecasts. Nobody uh, has, got, most of the figures are around about eight to 10% falls uh, for the major G7 economies in this quarter and the next quarter. So just imagine that uh, a 10% or fall in GDP in just half a year is a, is a massive blow uh, to all those economies, and it will mean a significant rise in unemployment. Uh, the International Labour Organization just published a report two days ago in which they see a rise in global unemployment over the next year of something like 22 million people coming losing their jobs. Most of those, of course, will be in the so-called global south, uh, where they've where their jobs are very precarious indeed. But we're also going to see. And I'll bear this in mind, listeners, that in the US, unemployment has been at a record low, at least on official figures, the unemployment rate. In the next six months, we're going to see a significant rise in that unemployment rate and a significant fall in the ability to of people to get enough income to pay their way. So uh, unless the government is going to bail out the working people of the United States rather than the companies of the United States, then people are really going to suffer. Well, we'll discuss that fantasy and others on the other side of the break. A lot more to discuss with Michael Roberts. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. I am a wayfaring stranger 
while traveling through this world of woe. Yet there's no sin, there's toil or danger in that bright world to which I go. Punch Radio. I'm chatting with Michael Roberts. Again, the website, the next recession at, uh, excuse me, the next recession.wordpress.com. You got to follow that. Make it part of your regular rotation. Michael is a prolific blogger and it's always full of um, really insightful commentary. So let's, um, let's come back to the issue. And I want to return to a point that we hear over and over again uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, on the news this phrase, flattening the curve, right? And when they talk about flattening the curve, they're talking about uh, deaths and infections and taking public health and safety measures in order to lower uh, the incidence of uh, COVID-19. But in fact, we also hear the term flattening the curve in the economic context. And I'd like to ask you to explain what exactly it means to flatten the curve with the, um, you know, in the economic context and what that actually looks like. Yes, uh, as your listeners probably know, the argument amongst the uh, epidemiologists and the uh, people looking at the virus, the scientists, is that if we uh, could reduce the uh, reduce the spread of the epidemic early on, so that even if it continues, it won't overload the health systems and cause uh, a major breakdown. Um, and so that's the idea of trying to uh, stop it before it gets uh, to delay it, as it were, to slow its uh, progress so that it has less of an impact than it otherwise would have, at least to begin with, until people can pitch in and do something about it. Uh, and this is um, the same idea you could put towards uh, the view of the economy as well, that if we've had this huge supply shock, as I talked about, and it leads to a sharp drop in uh, production, 8 to 10%, uh, if nothing is done at all, that what we need to do is try to reduce the impact uh, of that fall. 
so that it doesn't go down something like 8% or 10% within just half a year, and that we the government needs to intervene, governments around the world need to intervene to do something to flatten that curve. Now, a lot of proposals have already been uh, coming in now from uh, governments around the world. First of all, we had central banks cut their interest rates down to virtually zero or below. We've had huge injections of uh, credit, which central banks are offering to banks that they can lend that on to companies who may get into difficulty. We're even be getting some fiscal measures now, the idea of perhaps increasing uh, severance pay, six pay, uh, reducing the payroll tax, delaying uh, tax payments, your annual tax payments, uh, providing funds perhaps directly to households like a check at the beginning of the year uh, or the beginning of the quarter um, and perhaps money to build small businesses. All these measures of what you might call et economic mitigation are in a way to try and flatten the impact of the lockdown, which is now underway in some of the major economies. And if you have a lockdown, uh, Karl Marx once said, it's obvious to anybody that if everybody stops working, nothing gets produced and there's nothing to eat or, or, or live off. It's an obvious thing, but it's amazing how uh, it's not accepted that it's people who work, people working that produce this economy, not capitalists who invest, not billionaires who sit in their, in their big houses and then their companies. It's the people who work for them who produce things. And if people stop work because they've been forced to be locked down or self-isolate or forced into isolation or in hospital, then production comes to an end. How can we mitigate that? Well, if we can't do it by science, if we can't mitigate the impact of the virus by proper testing, by sufficient hospitalization and other sanitization methods, and clearly that's not been the case, then governments are resorting to total lockdowns, forcing people to home, and that means that the economy is going to collapse. So we need to flatten the impact of that economy by various mitigation measures, sending money people to their homes so they can spend, and that, that the whole thing doesn't come crashing to a meltdown. Uh, so that's the sort of measures that the governments around the world are trying to introduce now. In my view, uh, there's still not going to be sufficient to stop the slump. The slump is going to happen and the mitigation effect is going to be relatively uh, ineffective. Monetary measures have been totally ineffective in the past in boosting economies. If you pump loads of credit into banks, banks won't necessarily lend that on because they're fearful of handing over money to businesses that may not survive. So that necessarily doesn't work. A lot of that money will just sit around and perhaps end up in the stock market, boosting that rather than boosting the real economy. That's been the experience of the last 10 years of what is called quantitative easing or cutting the interest rates. It hasn't helped the real economy, but merely boosted the stock market and the bond market, what Marx called the markets of fictitious capital, not real capital. And that's not going to solve the problem. Now, fiscal spending of direct spending by governments, giving people checks, giving businesses money, cutting back on their rates and taxes, that will no doubt have some uh, short term effect, but it's not decisive. What are we going to do about airlines? Airlines will be totally bust by the end of May unless they get a bailout. Motor, car and auto companies are also in a similar situation. We may well see some banks start going to the wall. Lots of retail chains are in trouble if everything stops. Uh, what can be done about that? Well, the argument of most governments is 
that we have to consider bailing them out. So these rich billionaires, the airlines who have piled in billions of profits over the last 10 or 15 years and reinvested it in their own shares to boost the uh, wealth of the owners of these industries, rather than then in providing a service, a lower, a better service for airline passengers, these billionaire private companies now want a handout. My view is it's quite clear. We have to save air travel insofar as it's uh, sustainable in the world in the world of, of climate change. And we have to save uh, retailers across the board so that people have those services. But in return, the government needs to take control of these companies. These companies should no longer be privately run. They should no longer be in the hands of billionaires. They should be in the hands of the people. And that requires a massive program, in my view, of public ownership of the major sectors of the economy so that in the future we can direct and organize and plan production to take account of any shock that might appear in the future. I was just looking, Eric, at a report from France where uh, LVMH, that's Louis Vuitton, which is a perfume company. It's a multi-billionaire perfume company around the world. They have been directed by the French government to stop producing so much perfume and instead produce massively uh, sanitizer products at free uh, from the company uh, to provide hospitals with amount, enough sanitizers uh, for their work. That sort of intervention by government is what's going to be needed, uh, and that means direct control coming from the state, using it in the interests of people's needs. And we need more of that rather than just giving huge billions of which will eventually be taxpayers' money to the airlines and other failing industries. I'd like to discuss a couple of other factors that come into the equation that perhaps complicated or certainly contribute to the uh, overlapping crises that we are witnessing now. And I'm just going to highlight two of them. Um, first, I'd like to ask you to incorporate into our discussion what has happened leading up to this point, specifically with oil prices and oil production. We saw this major um, development several weeks ago with regard to oil production and uh, potentially a falling out between the Saudis and the Russians and the collapse of a sort of wink-wink, uh, nudge-nudge agreement that may have existed. It's not entirely clear, but what we do know is that oil markets are in panic. We know that uh, production is, uh, well, why don't, why don't I let you explain it? Here, tell us a little bit about the oil production and oil price question and how that's playing into global production. Okay, well, listeners may have noticed, perhaps they haven't, but there's been a huge fall in the price of crude oil and associated pro energy products over the last month or so in, in the wake of this uh, pandemic. Uh, it's fallen from something like $60 a barrel for crude now to under 30, down towards uh, 20, 25, which we haven't seen those levels for over 40 years. And that's, uh, that's happened simultaneously with the pandemic, but not necessarily directly connected with it, because it's to do with the uh, decision, the immediate decision of the Saudis and the Russians who control oil production around the world. They basically are the two main producers, not to agree on fixing prices, but to compete with each other to get a, a market share. The Saudis have opted for that rather than do a deal with the Russians. And so this has caused... A, re a huge fall in the price, combined with the fact, of course, that production is collapsing now, so there's less oil needed. And that's the point. It, 
the reason the prices collapsed is because there is plenty of oil production in the world. Uh, the Saudis, the Russians and all the other oil producers can pump out lots of oil, crude oil, and they can stick it on tankers and send it to places that demand it, which is like Japan and so on, who don't have their own oil. Uh, and that's the way the process has gone. But what has happened over the last uh, three or four years is there's been a significant slowing down of uh, output and production, particularly industry. And in the last year or so, uh, there's really been a global uh, manufacturing recession. Manufacturing has been contracting sharply and trade so that the demand for crude oil has fallen back. So although there's huge amounts of supply, demand has been falling and therefore there's a downward pressure on the price. It hasn't been able for the Saudis and the Russians to hold the price and maintain uh, their production levels that they've had up to now. So they're trying now, when things go bad, you start fighting each other in order to try and maintain your share of production and revenue. So that's what's happened. So the price has been falling. The other factor is that what as we've seen is that increasingly energy conservation, a reduction in, in the use of fossil fuel uh, as much as possible towards renewals or new renewables and other alternative forms of energy have meant that uh, crude oil production uh, is struggling to maintain its share of total energy. So there's a structural thing going on in the struggle to try and deal with climate change and global warming. Uh, there's a reduction in fossil fuel production share, still rising in total, and a switch to renewables. And now there's a collapse in production in general and a slowdown of world economies, which is reducing the demand for crude oil. So the prices are collapsing. And we're going to see more of this. This price is not going to go anywhere up because uh, the global economy is going to be weak um, and there's plenty of oil production. So the demand is going to stay low. Now, you might say, well, that's good news. Doesn't it mean that prices uh, at gas prices at the pumps are going to be lower? Well, they may well be, although most of uh, gas prices at the pumps are set by government taxation rather than by the price of the of the product itself. But there will be reductions. But anyway, if people are at home and self-isolated and can't travel, then it doesn't make a lot of difference if the if the gas price falls at the pump, at least not for now. And it certainly won't change the level of demand very much at all over the next few years. So we're now seeing a dramatic change in uh, oil prices. And that's affected all sorts of commodities as well. I just saw today that copper price is collapsing as well. All this is highly damaging to countries of the third world or the emerging markets or the global south, whatever the term you want to use, who are very dependent upon selling these sort of basic commodities uh, to the G7 and the advanced capitalist worlds and things like soybeans, agricultural products, iron ore, um, energy products that we've just talked about, uh, staple products of this nature, various minerals and so on. If prices are dropping, and they are across the board, these countries are going to lose huge amounts of money and they're going to be in a serious uh, situation which cannot be resolved uh, on their own. And that's the way that the commodity price collapse has now combined with the pandemic collapse to give a, hit a double whammy to the so-called emerging markets. 
And in fact, if people want an example of what what the political ramifications of that sort of collapse can be, we can look at the most recent commodities collapse in the in the middle part of the last decade in uh, 2014, 2015, when oil, which had hovered around $100 a barrel, suddenly plummeted down to 40, 50, actually lower, 25 at one point, I think. So and that, of course, led to political instability in Venezuela, political instability in Brazil, a number of other uh, yeah. produce, oil producing economies that then had this sort of political turmoil resulting from that. So I think it's quite likely that we could see something similar, maybe even on a grander scale. Yes, yeah, so various governments that uh, have, depend on the revenues and also their economies depend on the revenues from oil, like Mexico in particular, uh, Brazil to some extent, and of course Venezuela. The tragedy of Venezuela is a product of that slump that you talked about uh, five or six years ago, which the end of the commodity boom, uh, which uh, the Venez- Chavez's government had lived off and the Maduro government has seen disappear, uh, that situation is going to apply to a number of other countries that rely upon energy or on commodities as their key factor. Copper is key for countries like Chile. Uh, all these things are going to be uh, factors which will spread across the world. The world is a globally in- is integrated Uh, through trade, through its commodity and all the supply and value chains and a reduction, for example, in the output and demand of the Chinese economy, a key driver of demand around the world that we've seen and will see over the next year is going to have a huge impact on so many other countries. The other major factor that I wanted to discuss with you, and it's one that we've discussed on your previous appearances on this show, uh, is the corporate debt issue. Well, not just corporate debt, debt in general, but corporate debt specifically, and this bubble that we've seen emerging over several years and that many have warned about you as well. And I'm wondering how the corporate debt issue, debt in general and corporate debt specifically, factors into all of this. Does the crisis exacerbate this debt crisis? I think it does. This is this is a, a very key and important trend which uh, listeners should be aware of. Now, uh, Michael Roberts is offering, often accused by other leftist economists and uh, even other Marxist economists as being a one-trick pony. He's only interested in what's happening with the profitability of capital and he fails to notice what's happening in banks and uh, on other, other factors that could affect an economy and that you need a wider and a more complex and overarching view of what's going on in capitalism. Well, actually, it's not true. I've spent an awful lot of time on my blog and in my books explaining the connection between debt and credit and the profitability of capital. And it's simple for listeners to understand that if the profitability of capital is falling and capitalists can't make as much money as before, they look to maintain their production by borrowing. So they will increase their debt through bonds or bank loans in order to boost their production and hope that they can make uh, increased profits by expanding through borrowing. Also, if the profitability of investing in their particular of making things or providing services begins to decline, then what they can do is if they can borrow, they might speculate in the stock market drive up their own share prices and try to make a profit through the speculation in what I called earlier fictitious capital rather than real capital. So what we've seen over the last 30 years is an increase in debt, particularly corporate debt and bank debt, 
is as this financialization process takes place, as capitalists switch from investing in real productive things and into speculating in the stock market. That's been a process we've seen as the profitability of capital has fallen. And that was led eventually to a huge credit bust in 2007, the global financial crash, which combined with low profitability in the productive sectors caused the Great Recession. So my argument is that debt and profitability are linked together. They're not two separate things. And is what is happening in the profitability in the wider sectors of the capitalist economy leads to the reaction of increased debt. And there's been a huge increase, particularly of corporate debt. Public sector debt rose hugely to bail out banks and other industries in 2008-9. But corporate debt has risen consistently throughout this period as pro profitability of capital in the real sector has declined. So corporate debt has become a way in which companies have kept on going. And this fantasy world of a rising stock market, rising bond markets have been achieved by the central banks cutting interest rates down to zero and even providing uh, straightforward credit at very low rates by pumping money into the banks so that it can be go on to continue this speculative process. So now, if, but it, all good things come to an end. And if uh, we have a, a slump like this that's been hit through the virus pandemic uh, with low profitability, uh, there's no option to rely upon uh, the sale of goods uh, in the real sector. And if the debt is now going to have to be increased even more, uh, then there's a real danger that some companies are going to go bust because they just cannot service the debt. Even at zero interest rates, their profits and revenues have fall so much that they're faced with a decision they can't fund, fund their debt. And so they'll start collapsing. Lots of little small retailers and others have already gone to the wall even before this virus pandemic. We could see some really big companies over the next six months in serious trouble. I mean, Boeing's an example of a company that uh, through various trickeries and otherwise has got themselves into such a mess that they're now losing billions and billions because they cannot provide the planes which they supposedly were going to do and sell. Uh, that's an indication of how that, if you like, chance could, through a different event, could lead to a cascade across many companies. And finally, Eric, it's not just companies in the US and Europe and Japan, but even worse is that huge debt that has built up in the emerging market economies as companies there and governments there have borrowed huge amounts of dollars from uh, US banks and other international institutions to try and uh, grow there. But usually the money has gone into real estate and other speculative activities. So now if that money dries up, which it will do in this slump and dollars disappear, then loads of companies in emerging economies are going to be going to the wall. So the debt crisis is a product of the profitability crisis, and they feed upon each other. As Marxists really focus on material conditions and, and material reality of economics, I think it's important to consider what the material reality of working people is going to look like. Because, of course, if we head into a depression like it seems we are, um, 
it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet and it's not just charts, it's human beings. And so what I'd like to ask you is what is this going to look like? I mean, I can, one can imagine long lines at the unemployment office, but beyond that, there are knock-on effects all across uh, society from things like um, the explosion of an already dangerous homelessness crisis and housing crisis where housing is unaffordable, millions of people are living on the streets, and that is going to, of course, get much worse, uh, which then leads to public health issues, other public health questions, uh, questions of life expectancy. We might see uh, transformation in standards of living, etc. So can you talk a little bit about what the material reality of this economic crisis might look like? Well, in a way, uh, Eric, you've summed up quite a bit of it. All the things you've talked about have already been happening to some extent over the last 10 years. We've supposedly been in a recovery since the Great Recession, but growth has been so low, all the employment's there, it's paid so badly, it's so precarious. We know there's been increased levels of depression, of drug use across the US and also in uh, Europe as well. Uh, all these are signs of disillusionment and despair amongst a whole layer of uh, the population, not just uh, working population, because there's still a layer of people who can't even work. Uh, but And then even those who have got work are under tremendous pressure to deliver without much time for their own uh, families and uh, just a general life. Uh, so there is, there is I mean, I, the figure that always staggers me is to remember that most Americans only have less than $400 saved for any emergency. There's that huge layers of American uh, households who are right on the line. And this slump is going to drive a lot of them down and out altogether. Now, maybe governments will come up with amelioration plans to, to fund them, to support them, safety nets, as we call it, so that they can get through this crisis. Maybe that will have some effect. But it's, a, it's going to be such a large one, I find it difficult to believe that any uh, government, including particularly the US administration, is going to fund up enough to keep American households going. It's going to be looking to keeping American companies going and the billionaires in place rather than it is to keep uh, people going in this uh, crisis. So we're going to see a lot more rise in the uh, level of despair as expressed in all the sorts of nasty ways that you can imagine that will come about. Um, whether it will produce a wild protests on the part of the people remains to be seen. Uh, that a lot depends on that. We've well, got an election coming up at the end of this year. What does that mean for the election if we're in the middle of a deep slump in the US and other countries? How will uh, people react to the opportunity to vote for Tweedledee and Tweedledum, uh, both of whom haven't got much to offer uh, the American people? So the there, there's going to be a lot of issues which perhaps we don't even know how they're going to develop over the next to six to 12 months uh, and things that will happen to people, which uh, this demonstrates to me, I have to say it almost a little bit incoherently, that just how, how awful the capitalist system of production, investment, the mode is for human organisation, how it's so much uh, exhausted its potential to, to make things better for people in a way. Capitalism exhausted itself as, as a potential for improving things for the human beings around the world, and for that matter, for nature as well, which is damaging heavily. We need a different system. It's time that the people had control of their lives, control of their economy, 
so that they can plan things in the interests of people rather than a tiny elite. That's very well said. Well, we're pretty much out of time. And before we go, as always, I'd like to leave a, a minute or two to get some predictions out of you. So ah. let's hear let's hear let's hear your predictions, because uh, there's a lot of terminology going around. And as we as we mentioned earlier, you know, this comparison with 2008, 2009, this comparison with 1987. And I, I find most interesting, of course, the comparison with 1929 in the 1930s. So uh, give us your prediction on how deep this is going going to go, how bad this is going to get, and what we might uh, look to see in the next 12, 18, 24 months. Right. Well, I think certainly it's going to be the fall in production in the most of the major economies, fall in investment uh, because of the lockdown, the shutdown and so on, is going to be as deep, if not deeper, than the Great Recession of 2008-9. I don't know what we're going to call this, the Great Lockdown of 2020. Uh, but that's clearly the case. It's going to be deeper. Now, will it be as long, 18 months? Well, I think it's likely to be longer than the six months that uh, all the optimist mainstream economists are hoping it will be, and everything will be back to normal by this time, March 2021, when perhaps I'll be talking to, list to you and listeners again, and everything will be fine and dandy, and it will be one big nightmare that will be forgotten. I think it's likely to drag on, and it's also going to have repercussions uh, into that period, which will have uh, lasting effect. Recessions have lasting effects. They don't disappear overnight. They have long term effects on people's jobs, livelihoods and their whole uh, future uh, after the after being hit, as it were, really hard uh, by a slump. So I suspect this will be longer and it will probably last the rest of this year. And most of the world economy will be uh, down in that year. So that's that's the first prediction I think that we could I would I would make. Well, well, we'll leave it there and we'll return to that. And of course, we'll, we'll we'll monitor the situation. Michael Roberts has been on the show. Michael Roberts' website, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. The book, The Long Depression, Marxism and the Global Crisis of Capitalism, an absolute must read. As always, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Eric, and uh, hope the listeners are not too depressed and we can struggle on. Well, it could be a long depression, but it could be a uh, it could be a moment of clarity as well. So as always, listeners, thank you for listening and we will talk again next week.